0: This is Mark Steiner, and you're listening to The Real News Daily Podcast. Our coverage is sustained by listeners like you. More information on how to donate to The Real News, please visit us at therealnews.com forward slash donate. Students at Brazil's Santa Catarina Federal University are on strike. 70% of classes have been canceled. It's been ongoing for two weeks. They made the decision to strike on September 10th in a huge assembly attended by thousands of students. The students are striking against a massive 30% cut to the university budget and the rollout of a government restructuring plan called Futurise, which they say is an attempt to privatize the university system. The Santa Catarina Federal University is one of the top 20 schools in Latin America, this is the first university student body in Brazil to declare an ongoing strike against the Bolsonaro government. They're hoping other universities will join them.
1: The universities will not make it to the end of the year with the budget slashed, and there's a possibility they won't make it halfway through the next year with the proposed budget. So because of the urgency, we decided to organize and propose this strike as an historic tool to stand up to what is being imposed upon us.
0: Teachers spoke out in support of the striking students last week during a university-wide teacher assembly. Some particularly railed against the recent elimination of thousands of scholarships and research grants by Education Minister Abraham Weintraub.
2: We can't let a government that is burning the Amazon, burning our mountains, and burning our dreams contaminate the dreams of our students. What Minister Weintraub is doing with the Brazilian postgraduate students is terrorism. You don't do that. It ends the dreams of students who are just a year from finishing their master's and they don't know if they'll be able to continue or not because they don't know if there will be PhD programs in this country. If there is no science, there is not country. And there is no sovereignty. We have to stand up now.
0: The teachers, however, voted against joining the students. Most classes, nevertheless, are canceled. The students may be on strike, but they're not staying home. Ongoing activities, events, and meetings are being held to organize and hash out next steps.
2: Gama diversa de mentes de diversas áreas do saber
3: We have a diverse range of minds from different areas who don't usually communicate. So the strike is a moment these people who are worried about education are coming together. They're meeting and organizing in various working groups: art,
0: internal communication, foreign relations, legal de
3: comunicação interna, de articulação externa,
0: Across campus, several days a week, pharmacy students visit with patients waiting to be seen at the university hospital. Some of their companions have already lost scholarships from the budget cuts.
2: That's why we're here, because you deserve to hear about what's happening from us, the students. We are on strike, but that doesn't mean we're staying home. We want to study, but we want to be sure we can continue the semester or have the funds for next year, which is why we are on strike and speaking with the community.
0: The funding cuts are already taking their toll. The university's subsidized school cafeteria is set to be closed. This will hit poor students hard, as the highly inexpensive meal costs less than half a U.S. dollar, and it's something they often can't do without. Students are also afraid that if Bolsonaro's Futurese program is imposed, the university may start charging for its medical services. All of the beds right now at the
3: hospital are public, and no one pays. But if this project is put into effect, many of the spots could go to private insurance plans. In other words, people will have to pay for medical care at the public hospital.
0: Under Futurese, federal universities must acquire partial funding from private businesses and entities. The program was announced in July. In an overflowing school-wide university council meeting earlier this year, the university overwhelmingly opposed the plan. University professors and deans have expressed major concerns because they weren't consulted, and because it could put university administration in the hands of private entities, investors, and businesses. They say it could impact how teachers are hired, the classes that are offered, and the direction of the university itself.
2: Não dá
4: para ignorar que esse é o projeto que está em curso com relação a uma das principais. You can't
0: ignore the fact that this project is being rolled out against one of the main fronts of resistance that any authoritarian government has to confront. We lived through the experience of the federal universities during the military dictatorship. The main resistance against the regime was created through the federal universities. For many of those here, Futurise is really a political tool to gut funding for humanities departments, sociology, and philosophy, which Bolsonaro has long accused of being hotbeds of Marxist teachings. With a greater dependence on private funding, Bolsonaro could ensure that investors put their money where they think it's a good bet – business, engineering, maybe medicine.
1: We need to organize society against this great risk, which means handing over its greatest ability to create a sovereign future, and that is with the public and autonomous universities, a university that can manage its resources and define where it's going to invest its money, in what research and specialization and define its curriculum. And all of this, which is the foundation of the public and autonomous university, is at risk with the creation of this project Future Say.
0: Students have vowed not to back down. The strike will continue, and they're expected to join more national rallies in early October.
3: This is Tharna Noor, and you're listening to The Real News Daily Podcast. For all of our audio coverage, go to soundcloud.com slash Network.
1: The U.S. government's border security buildup has been going on for 18 years now, affecting not only the Latino community, which has had to deal with the separation of families, the criminalization of communities, and with racial profiling, but it has also affected Native American border communities. We spoke to Ophelia Rivas, a Tohono O'odham elder who lives in the area of Ajo, Arizona. Uh, the
4: powers that be, uh, the governments, uh, can and will just waver any rights that we have to do what they want to do, which is build the vehicle barrier, build the wall, and build the integrated fixed towers on all the lands and sacred lands
1: that we have. To complement the border wall, the federal government has gradually constructed an entire system of ultra-vigilance with different kinds of mobile sensors, cameras, radar units, microwave systems, surveillance drones, and an integrated fixed tower surveillance network, or ITF, patrolling the border region around the clock and feeding information to a control center. By using mobile high-definition cameras, sensors and radar stations the system can detect and track movement from many places simultaneously, giving its control room the ability to guide many ground teams and at the same time to use a host of technological resources and special cameras to track many subjects at the same time.
4: When the Border Patrol proposed these uh, uh, towers, they were calling them originally communication towers oh, we can't communicate with each other, so we're going to put these towers up. And originally, they were uh, 200 feet tall. And because of the airplane regulations, they reduced them to 180 feet tall. 180 feet tall, and they proposed 15 towers on the Tohono Nation.
1: Elbit Systems is installing the surveillance system on O'odham land. The Israeli company was awarded a $145 million contract to construct 53 ITF towers in Arizona's southern border in 2014. According to the Jerusalem Times, it will be able to detect a single walking average-sized adult at a range of 5 miles to 7.5 miles during day or night while sending close to real-time video footage back to agents manning a command post. Popular Mechanics describes the system's accuracy. Elbit Systems is so specific that it can determine whether an individual is carrying a backpack or a long-arm weapon. In Ajo, Arizona, we spoke to a group of Native community activists and inhabitants of the border area. According to most of them, this net of intensive surveillance has radically changed their lives in many ways.
0: When I was born and raised here, we used to jump in my grandfather's truck a bunch of other kids, we'd go down to Sonoita and it was no big deal crossing the border. You know, it was like normal stuff. It's like family, you know, everybody knows each other. And we had family down there. And we go down there do shopping, you know, or go visit family or get haircuts. And neck it was normal business to us. And there might have been two agents at the time when all this was happening. And they knew the locals, you know. So it was never a big problem.
1: Everything changed after 9-11. The border became a national security issue with all the might of the federal government behind it.
3: After 9-11, we saw... Um, the increase of checkpoints and we cannot enter or leave our lands without going through a checkpoint and being questioned on who we are and where we're from and it's and it's ironic because a lot of the people doing the questioning are outsiders to our homeland and yet the people that are originally from there are often harassed and questioned the most.
4: Uh, since 9-11 uh, there's been a, a great difference, a uh, very aggressive and uh, attacking people uh, to, to the point of, uh, you know, injuring people and killing people. I, I spoke in my language, so he pulled his um, uh, pistol and he put it at my head in front of my daughter and my grandson and um, said that I would have to say whether I was a U.S. citizen or a Mexican citizen. And I said I was a Tohono Nation member.
1: There have been many reported instances of violence that the Border Patrol has committed, including the running over of an Odam Nation tribal member. This, along with constant surveillance, has damaged a historically cordial relationship between members of the Odam Nation and the Border Patrol.
4: The international border that impacts our people are uh, impacted by the policies, the immigration policies. We're not immigrants ourselves. You know, in our, our oral history, we've been here since the beginning of time. But... These policies have been uh, violating our cultural rights and our human
1: rights. The Border Patrol has installed sensors all over the border area and is patrolling it using surveillance drones. Some locals told us that they were followed when they were taking a walk with their dog. They also pointed out that they were required to carry their identification papers constantly to avoid being detained or even deported. The ITFs are just one of many surveillance tools that the Border Patrol uses. There are also remote video surveillance systems, mobile unattended ground sensors, unattended ground radars, mobile vehicle surveillance systems, agent portable surveillance systems, surveillance drones, planes, helicopters, and even high-tech surveillance blimps. All of these systems can work to form a virtual fence which, even if you manage to cross the wall that is being built in the area, would make it practically impossible to cross undetected. Many of these integrated systems can also record all the information in its coverage area, process it, identify subjects, and retroactively review where they have been and who they have been with. According to a written assessment directed to Congress by the Department of Homeland Security, wide area persistent surveillance camera systems have the ability to surveil a specific region in order to increase the opportunity to detect and observe activities, identify entities involved, and track events followed in real-time or backwards forensically. Speaking to The Real News Network, Bill Parrish, a reporter who wrote a story about the Oedam Nation and the Border Patrol for the Intercept, describes how this virtual wall affects border towns and neighbors. But Some are located right next to residential areas. So, you know, basically anything that anyone is doing living in those areas is is going to be captured by these integrated fixed towers, which pipe images and other data back to Border Patrol command centers uh, in southern Arizona. And they have a, a a back in time feature, you know, sort of like a a TiVo meets Google Earth kind of
0: feature, where you know, basically the all the images and data are stored and can be
1: uh, pulled up uh, across time, so you can so that border patrol agents are able to monitor people's movements over time, which is which is essentially what persistent surveillance means. During the production of last week's report about the new border wall and the local ecosystem, a Real News team visited Quito Blanco Springs for several hours. We filmed right next to the border, but until we got to a checkpoint, we weren't approached or searched. It is very probable that the agents in charge of the surveillance system in the area, who were notified of our presence beforehand, knew exactly what we did, with whom and where. This kind of omnipresence entails great power over the populations it covers. As a result, it presents many questions, especially if the government expands its use. Bill Parrish, writing for The Intercept, quotes Bobby Brown from Border Protection at Elbit Systems as saying, Over time, we'll expand not only to the northern border, but to ports and harbors across the country. Despite numerous voices of opposition within the Odam nation, a March 22, 2019 meeting of the Tohono Odam Council approved the construction of the towers as a sign of support for Border Patrol, the War on Drugs, and, as reported by the LA Times, in the hope the wall would not be constructed in certain areas. This hope, however, seems misplaced since the wall is scheduled to cover all of Arizona's southern border. Rivas believes that something larger might also be at play. She describes a worldwide trend of taking native land and displacing native nations as a very real danger for the Tohono O'odham people.
4: You know, they, they continue to funnel the people through there. Um, maybe it's because they want the land of the Tohono O'odham nation. They, Trump did say that they were going to privatize all Indian lands.
1: Adrian Vega, also of O'Dam Nation, born in Aho, told us that there's a consistent rumor about eminent domain. That's
0: uh, always a question with the native lands in America, as we know, is uh, because the government feels they gave it to them, uh,
1: they probably feel they can take it back. And that's a huge concern in the native nations. Rivas finds the current situation of Central American immigrants to be similar to the infamous boarding system, which the U.S. government imposed on Native communities all over North America.
4: If I don't listen to the news because of that, of the children dying in the prisons, or the women getting raped, or, you know, all this displacement of families, you know. And I rem- it reminds me of the boarding school system. My aunt, who was probably 12, uh, got removed from the home and got sent to New Mexico uh, early, early on when boarding school happened. I was taken to... Uh, Nevada for boarding school so that uh, we understand that and we have uh, we can uh, send up That's all we can do is send our prayers because we know how the system works and what has happened to uh, indigenous people here on this lands.
1: Stay tuned with the Real News Network for more on this issue.
2: This is Jacqueline Lukman with The Real News Network. The president is driving the discussion about rising homelessness in this country, and he's targeting California in particular.
0: Nearly
4: half of all the homeless people living in the
2: streets in
4: America
0: happen to live in the state of California. What they are
4: doing to our beautiful California is a disgrace to our country. It's a shame the world is looking at it. Look at Los
2: Angeles with the tents and the horrible, horrible, disgusting conditions. Now of course his rhetoric is callous and he doesn't focus on the human toll of homelessness at all. But what he also does not address are the causes of homelessness, which, if he did, if we did as a nation, could inform the solutions to the issue. That is, if we really cared to address them at all. So maybe if we look at one of the groups of people who are hit the hardest by the homeless crisis, we might be able to formulate some solutions to this problem, if that's really what we want to do. Here to talk with me about this community in L.A. County and how they are particularly hard hit by this crisis is Gail Holland. Gail covers homelessness and poverty for the Los Angeles Times. Gail, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank
3: you for having me, Jacqueline.
2: And I want to thank you for writing the piece on the Pacomia community that was recently published in the LA Times. That was an incredible uh, and shocking piece that was published. Um, but before we get into it, I want to address a part of what Trump said because I want us to put the homeless issue in California in some context. Let's talk about some real numbers. Homelessness. Is a growing issue in California, right? Correct. And it is it is an issue that has grown exponentially because homelessness has risen in California steadily since two thousand eleven, reaching almost sixty thousand people that were documented as homeless this year, right? Absolutely. Now, to your article about the community in Pacomia, California. That's a particularly interesting and unique community because this group of people that you highlighted in your article uh, were basically the children of a middle class, working class African American community in Pacomia, California. And Pacomia is unique and noteworthy because it was one of the few places in Los Angeles County where African-Americans could buy homes before the 1960 fair housing
3: laws, right? Particularly um, suburban places. There were other neighborhoods in urban Los Angeles that didn't have racial covenants to keep Black people and other people of color out. But in the suburbs, and particularly the San Fernando Valley, like home of the Valley girl, The covenants were pretty ubiquitous across many, most of the communities other than Pacoima. And so in Pacoima, the people who settled there were I mean, there was a range, like there always is everywhere, but basically, this was the doctors, the teachers, the judges, as well as the factory workers, the ice cream salesmen, the the retailers, the insurance salesmen, because there was a possibility of home ownership that wasn't available and and in a suburban setting with yards and a little bit more space than in the inner city.
2: Mm. So this was a thriving uh, working class, middle class, but even professional class Black community in the 60s. And then in the 70s, the fair housing laws were implemented and some Black people with a little more money, with a little uh, uh, higher education, moved out of that community, moved farther out into the suburbs where housing was more open to them. But you still had a thriving, working-class Black community because manufacturing jobs uh, were still in existence in the area.
3: Yeah, and a lot of people don't think of LA as a manufacturing hub, but it was. And we had a major General Motors um, factory plant that produced the Camaro. I think a lot of people remember the Camaro. And there was a uh, Price Fister faucet, you know, uh, kitchen fixtures plant, and a few other plants. So there were line jobs, there were administrative jobs, and then, like I said, there were the kinds of professional jobs that those people would have probably perhaps wanted to move somewhere else, but weren't able to because of um, these racial covenants restricting them from going elsewhere in the valley. The valley at that time was barely developed. I mean, one irony that I found out in my reporting is basically, again, it's not as well known as like Chicago or even maybe Baltimore, no, not Baltimore, but um Some of the other cities that are known for the Great Migration of African Americans from the South, right? It's kind of like a mini little place for uh, the Great Migration. And when a lot of the founding families arrived, people were actually living in tents. And now their ancestors are back to living in tents. So, I mean, I'm sorry, their descendants are back to living in tents. So, it's just a very cruel irony of history.
2: so so let, let's talk about the, the factors that contributed to the descendants of those original uh, African-American people who migrated to this area, to that area in the country, lived in tents until they could uh, achieve their quote-unquote American dream and buy a house, and now their descendants are living in tents again, because we're talking about the collapse of U.S. manufacturing, that that area particularly hard, right? Right, because
3: and uh, the other the other jobs that were available for people were in the aerospace industry, and of course after World War II, the aerospace industry had really pioneered in Southern California and specifically in that part of the valley. So it was also the the decline of the aerospace industry mm. and. I think people didn't realize it till later, but this is what really, you know, people think of LA as Hollywood and Hollywood being where the money is in LA, but in actuality, the aerospace industry and some of its options like the auto industry and all the theater industries to the big planes is where a lot of the wealth of LA was created right after World War II. And this is where these people, their families had jobs.
2: And then after you have the, the erosion of the economic base, uh, the, the, the uh, elimination of jobs where people, so people could afford their homes, then you had the introduction of crack cocaine, the, pro, the proliferation of crack cocaine in an already economically devastated um, and racially segregated community um, where you did not see the proliferation of that drug in many other communities that were not predominantly poor and predominantly black. And then on the tail end of that, or during that proliferation, you also had mass incarceration that went along with that. So this community of a uh, former thriving, middle-class black community, many of those residents are now, as you said earlier, on the streets living in tents again.
3: Right. I think it actually isn't many, it just feels like many, because of course there should be none. But in this one, I mean, who? there should be no people living on the street, but there are. And in this one camp, which had been driven over the years, they've been out there in various configurations for three to five years, some of them have been driven from neighborhood to neighborhood, and finally According to them, the LAPD told them to go under this freeway overpass because they would not be impacting homes and schools as much. And so the the homeless services provider that's trying to help them find housing says that there's 50 people out there. And I mean, even in Los Angeles, where as some of the pictures you're showing show, there are block after block of tents, it doesn't stop being shocking but 50 people in one place in the middle of a suburb, yes. I think was very shocking to a lot of people and it was certainly shocking to me.
2: Yes, certainly. And and when you consider that uh, many of those people are from the same community, um, and then when you look at this issue. Not from the same community, but many of them are related,
3: if only my former you know, brother-in-law, laws 2nd wife. I see. Other And so they may be on the sidewalk, but they're still part of the community. Right, right. All the time to help them. The reason I bring this up is that a lot of times people ask me, why don't their families take care of them? Well, in in many cases, their families are trying to still take care of them. They're out there in the streets trying to help them.
2: Mm. So then when we look at this issue from, uh, a, a macro view, not just Pacomia uh, uh, in the neighborhood of Pacomia. We look at LA County as a whole, that has a, an African American population of only about nine percent, but has forty uh, percent of the homeless population is African American. So yeah. then we begin to ask why that is, and. Now we look at more data where a recent study uh, uh, outlines that it's the systemic racial issues that you raised in your article, as well as the economic issues of manufacturing, uh, uh, job loss, uh, and uh, um, um, housing issues that also contribute to a disproportionate number of African-Americans being represented among the homeless community, but that these issues also contribute to homelessness in general. So can you give more insight into this study?
3: Well, I think that just looking at um in terms of people arrived from the South with no wealth, and they were able to buy these houses and build this very nice community. But when the time came of industrial disinvestment, at that time the community was extremely stigmatized as a place where there was a lot of drug trafficking and other crime. So their houses were worth nothing. So there was no wealth for them to pass on to their children to sustain themselves as they entered adulthood and tried to move on to having their own families and this kind of thing. And at the same time, I mean, I don't know how big a factor this was, but some of the people I talked to talked about within their own families because their parents no longer able to work very close to the point they had to drive up to the high desert communities where the aerospace industry and other industrial jobs that hadn't fled overseas. Had gone to these very low cost or low price areas in the high desert here, the drive, there'd be long commutes, family life was disrupted, and so they lost out on
1: those counts
2: as well. Mm. So when we hear this president and Ben Carson and others in this administration proposed to use the police to clear away homeless encampments, even more than what is being done now, uh, to criminalize homelessness, and to put homeless people in federal facilities, which are basically prisons and detention centers, that's clearly horrible for all people, for all homeless people. But what does it mean in particular for this group of people who have already been stigmatized, as you said, and and discriminated against and have already faced so much uh, victimization. What what does it mean for people who truly have been victimized by the collapse of this American economy?
3: Well, I think one thing that you that you see immediately if you talk to these people is there's so much trauma. There's people whose children who watch their children get killed in front of them. There's people who lost their parents for lack of health care or, you know, the hospitalization, they weren't able to get there on time. And so it's not not as simple as just get them an apartment. There's a lot of healing that has to go on for a lot of these people and just compounds for the people who like Mr. Trump and Ben Carson, who are angered by seeing tents in the street. the, The amount of time that they've been left there both the circumstances that occurred in their neighborhood as they were growing up, and also the direct racism they experienced, and then some of the things that have gone on since then, they need a lot of services, like mental health services. I think there's many people out there that need mental health services and uh, drug addiction or, or abuse services. And one thing that I think a lot of people don't realize is that And I think the research is still out on this, but there's a lot of people that believe that the prevalence of drug abuse in the streets, it's not that these were drug abusers who therefore landed in the streets. There are certainly those people who weren't able to keep up a job or whatever, but there's an awful lot of people that start using drugs in the street to self-medicate or for mental health problems that may have led to them being in the street so I also think um, that one thing I've learned reporting on this for five years is that it's one thing to say you're going to take a criminalization approach to homelessness, but one would need to ask oneself, how many police do we really have? Are we going to, if there's 59,000 people, there's 10,000 officers in the city of Los Angeles, of course, homelessness is a 24-7 thing. If you think you're going to police those people twenty, you know, round the clock, year round, with 10,000 officers that have every other law enforcement issue to deal deal with at the same time, I'm not sure how serious those calls for that as a solution are, mm. because there just aren't the resources. There aren't the resources to impose the kind of uh, orders or. That they want, and the same problem with incarceration. Um, the, there are plenty of people that clinicians here in Los Angeles would like to see enter mental health facilities and could benefit from it, and they aren't able to. They the resources have not been dedicated to that. And I mean, the sheriff a long time ago said he would not take low level drug dealers into the jail because he would be overrun by them.
2: Hmm. So, uh, so, Gail, let me let me ask you uh, uh, this final question. The rhetoric coming from this administration uh, is, is very similar to the the, the build the wall rhetoric, uh, where there is demonization of a particular group of people, uh, blaming those people who are marginalized and victimized for all of the problems of this country. It's is do you Do you think that the the administration taking this uh, type of approach, demonizing, further demonizing homeless people, and especially uh, ex- particularly vulnerable groups of homeless people, uh, is that going to exacerbate the problem in your opinion? Well, I think that political analysts and our political
3: reporters, Feel that he's using it as a web. I'm sorry, a wedge issue, to uh, rile up his base, and hoping that that will help him with his reelection effort. Um, I again, he came out here. He spent a few days here. The only order he made was something about water quality being affected by having street camps. Um, I think California has is perhaps among the top states in dealing with its water quality, its air quality. I mean we have problems because we're very overcrowded as a state. I I just don't know how serious he is about it. So it leads one to believe that actually it's more of an election election year stunt, as the Democrats say, particularly as the cities that he's attacking are Democratic-led cities and cities with people of color, Mm. where the politicians have been critical of the language that he's used about immigrants. And of course, for us in Los Angeles, where Latinos are not a minority, not even close, um, it's it's beyond the pale to have that particular group demonized as people who haven't given to our society or country because it's so much of our city and they they make the city go around. I mean, every
2: group does, but. Yeah, I I, I mean, it sounds like all of the things you mentioned, uh, of course, housing, uh, of course, an end to uh, racial discrimination, just acknowledging racial discrimination uh, that has contributed significantly to uh, homelessness for so many people of color, uh, and certainly substance abuse, mental health abuse, which of course ties into Medicare for All, and other social programs that could address this issue and mitigate it for hundreds of thousands of people across this country, but That's not where we are. And it looks as though we have much more work to do in this arena of addressing and relieving homelessness in this country. But Gail Holland, thank you so much for joining me today and uh, bringing us this story of the Pacomia community and what it means in the larger context of addressing homelessness in this country.
3: Well, thank you for the opportunity.
2: And thank you for watching. This is Jacqueline Lukman with The Real News Network in Baltimore.
3: Our coverage is sustained by listeners like you. For more information about how to donate to The Real News, head over to the slash donate.
1: Welcome to The Real News Network. I'm Greg Wilpert in Arlington. The chairman of the Israeli Blue and White Party, Benny Gantz, won more seats than Netanyahu's Likud party in the election that took place in Israel about two weeks ago. Nonetheless, Israeli President Reuven Rivlin decided to first give Netanyahu the right to try and form a coalition government. The reason for Rivlin's decision is that Gantz appealed to one of the parties that support him, the Joint List, and asked them to support him only halfway so that Netanyahu would have the opportunity to form a coalition government first. Now, why did Gantz give up the opportunity to form a coalition before Netanyahu? One possibility is that Gantz is distracted with a court case in the Netherlands, which is debating whether to issue an arrest warrant against him on charges of war crimes. On the same day that elections were held in Israel on September 17th, a court in The Hague, Netherlands. Discussed a charge by Ismail Ziada, a Dutch citizen from the Gaza, Gaza Strip. Ziada filed charges against two men, Benny Gantz and Amir Eshel. In the course of his testimony, Ismail Ziada recounted how on July 20, 2014, during the Israeli invasion of the Gaza Strip, his home in the El Boureish refugee camp in the center of the Gaza Strip was bombarded. Ziada's mother, Muftia Ziada, his brothers, Jamil, Youssef, and Omar, and his sister in law, Bayan, and his 12 year old nephew, Shaban, were all killed in the bombing. During the invasion, Benny Gantz was the commander of the Israeli military, and Emir Esher Asher, was the commander of the Air Force. Said Eddin Ziada, a member of the Ziada family, had the following to say about the case Whether Gantz forms a government or becomes a prime minister, we, the Ziada family, and through our brother Ishmael, we will continue to pursue him in international courts and we will look for any way or opportunity to judicially pursue him so we would criminalize him and have him in trial for the awful crime that was committed against six members of our family who got killed. We're now joined by Professor Hila Dayan, who was present during the court proceedings in The Hague. She is the founder of the organization Academia for Equality, a Hebrew-speaking network of scholars from around the world dedicated to issues of social and political justice. Also, she teaches comparative democracy and sociology of the other at the Amsterdam University College. Thanks for joining us today, Hila. Thank you, Greg. So one of the reasons that uh, we invited you to speak about this case is that you live in the Netherlands and you speak Dutch, as well as uh, Hebrew. And um, so can you tell us if this case has received any public attention in the Netherlands and in Israel? And if so, do you think it might have affected the vote of some Israelis, thinking that, they, uh, that the man in charge for, um, the man that they are voting for, may be charged with, um, with uh, war crimes?
5: Uh, Well, first, let me tell you that uh, the hearing was an amazing uh, event and uh, I left it really tantalized. Uh, The courtroom was full of uh, spectators and the audience was mainly uh, activists and supporters of the Ziada family, which was really heartwarming And uh, as an activist. And uh, uh, as for uh, coverage of the case, I believe it was quite widely and extensively covered by main news outlets, Le Monde, Monde, New York Times, and uh, and the Dutch press. Uh, Israeli press also covered it. Uh, I have to say, mainly online news. And uh, as far as I can tell from uh, uh, following up uh, on the case uh, reception in Israel, No television uh, covered uh, uh, the court hearing that day. Um, So I think that in terms of exposure to the Israeli um, uh, voters' constituency, uh, the the case was not big news at all, uh, although it did want some significant international headlines. In Israel, I believe um, no voter was dissuaded to not vote blue and white because of the court case. Most of the votes of blue and white are from the Zionist Center. Uh, It's a centrist party that is uh, very hawkish on military affairs and on security issues. Uh, He is quite fresh, uh, a fresh uh, commander of the IDF coming to the political scene, scene. As a, a green uh, politician, and everybody um, sort of that votes for this party was, uh, yeah, supporting him as a figure, as a military figure first and foremost. So uh, those who did not support or did not vote for for this party are um, mostly. Other votes went to uh, to Labour and to the Democratic Camp and to, of course, the uh, the Joint List was uh, came out the third largest party in the elections, which was uh, an incredibly uh, uh, positive development in 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 the results.
1: Um, I want to turn to Gantz himself now. Do you think that his maneuvering to allow Netanyahu to go first first with the formation of a new uh, coalition government, Israel. Is that related to the trial?
5: I I believe that the trial is not a significant strategic concern for him. There have been other trials going on against Tzipi Livni and the, and Barak, if I'm not mistaken, and other very high-profile people have faced uh, uh, some sort of proceedings against them, and it did not. It all influenced their uh, careers uh, in the political scene in Israel. So I believe he, it's not really calculated into his uh, his considerations. However, I think that it's, um, if I may, it's it's quite uh, an interesting and unprecedented hearing. And maybe you want to get uh, you you you'd like to know more about why it is being uh, heard in a civilian court rather than in an international court where uh, all the other case proceedings were, were um, uh, pursued.
1: Yeah, I want to get to exactly that point. But actually, first I first want to ask you something else That is um, about what actually happened in that uh, proceeding that you observed. Obviously, yeah. Benny Gantz and Amir Eshel did not come to The Hague to defend themselves. So who is defending them, and uh, what is the main issue that the court has yeah. to decide now?
5: So first of all, for your viewers and everyone watching, it's very important to know that the Hague coming to the Hague should not be confused with the International uh, uh, Court of Justice in the Hague, right? That's the international instance uh, where uh, grave human rights violations are being uh, uh, prosecuted. But uh, here we're talking about the. Uh, uh, ju- the, the court in the Netherlands, so, uh, so it's the Supreme Court of the Netherlands in The Hague. And that's an important distinction. It's just an, uh, the normal uh, national court system. Um, he was represented by uh, there at least two law firms that we know of uh, are representing, uh, Gantz and Eshel. Uh This is quite a, uh, an investment. It's, all, it's been directly funded by the government of Israel. Uh, their defense. Uh, But we were surprised to see that in the hearing uh, they sent very, very young advocates to uh, merely rehearse or read aloud uh, the arguments um, against uh, uh, the lawsuit. Uh, So we expected a much more uh, heavy, um, yeah, a more heavy presence from the uh, representatives of Gantt and Eschil, but uh the um, yeah, the presence in court was really junior uh, uh advocates, so it seemed very young and very um yeah there was not a lot of uh, uh anything happening other than them reading from the already kind of submitted text to in front of the audience and the in the
2: court.
1: Now, ever since the Palestinian government in Ramallah signed the Rome Convention of the International Criminal Court, the Gaza Strip actually falls under the jurisdiction of the ICC in The Hague. So why is this case taking place in a local court and not in the International Criminal Court, as you say?
5: Yeah. In fact, the most high-profile advocate of this uh, uh, entire legal case is Lisbeth Zegfold. She is one of the most... Well-known human rights advocate in the Netherlands and in Europe generally, and um, and she's represented uh, representing this, the other family, and uh, I think that her uh, decision to address uh, the courts in the Netherlands um, are in, are entirely her. Uh, the strategy is because the Netherlands is uh, um, allows. Uh, jurisdiction, international jurisdiction, allows citizens of its country to, uh, uh, to seek justice if they cannot, if something happened to them in another place, they are allowed to seek justice uh, 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 for damages and for gra- grave violations that happened in a third country. So the Netherlands recognizes this right uh, of jurisdiction, of international jurisdiction uh, in, her, uh, in its uh, national courts. And that is why I think uh, the case of uh, Ismail Ziada rests primarily on uh, basically two arguments. One, uh, this was um, uh, the attack on the uh, on the home in Gaza was a, an act of uh, war crime, and second is the, the uh, uh, Ismail Ziyada is. Uh, claiming uh, comp- he's claiming uh, compensation which he intends to donate to the uh, to the families of the people killed in Gaza in that operation, and he's claiming recognition for it as a war crime. She's arguing Lisbeth Zechfeld is arguing that he cannot get any recourse to any system of justice and especially not the Israeli criminal uh, ju- uh, the Israeli justice system. And um, on and on that basis, uh, she asserts his right as a Dutch citizen, holding citizenship, to pursue uh, his case in the Netherlands. And I think that's the core of the uh, prosecution. And again, uh, this is unprecedented. Uh, it has never been. Uh, there has never been any case like that before. Something that, of course, the def- the, the uh, defenders of Asiel uh, and Guns. Uh, argued uh, that there is no precedent that this is a violation of state sovereignty, et cetera, et cetera, and they've made many other arguments. Um, and one of uh, it's it's interesting to see that during uh, their uh, uh, layout of of their uh, argumentation, they started with uh, the most. Basic rules in international law, uh, the, uh, uh, the stipulations concerning state sovereignty, non violation of state sovereignty, and of course the, the issue of uh, the immunity that holders of official uh, uh, positions in the government or in, in the states have against individual persecution. These are very solid and very uh, you can say, well-founded in uh, legal books uh, principles that they've argued. But what's more interesting is when they uh, turned in the second part of their uh, speeches to much more political arguments against the case. And mm-hmm. that's when it got really interesting, because it was very clear that behind the argumentation is the state of Israel. It's uh, uh, argumentation that uh is uh, is uh, decidedly trying to portray the case as a political uh, case as uh, as uh, setting up the Dutch system as a political stage for the Palestinians they are trying to politicize the case uh, and and scare the courts in my uh, analysis to uh, to simply uh, throw it out. Uh, they are arguing that in this court case, the entire Israeli justice system is tending to the judgment of the Netherlands and its court system, something unheard of, something that is never uh, done. And that also the, the court in the Netherlands has no experience like the, the Israeli justice system has. Uh, in issues of war, etc., and that the Court of Justice in the Netherlands is also not uh, uh, entitled and at all mm. to judge on these matters in uh, uh, concerning the validity and the, the uh, of the Israeli justice system.
1: Okay. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. I mean, I want to just also note, of course, that more than 2,000 Palestinians were killed by the Israeli forces during the 2014 invasion of Gaza. And only a handful of them have in, uh, European citizenship in order to take this course, uh, case to court. But like I said, we're going to have to leave it there for now. I was speaking to uh, Hila Dayan, professor of comparative democracy and sociology of the other at the Amsterdam University College. Thanks again, Hila, for having joined us today.
5: Thank you very much.
1: And thank you for joining the Real News Network.
3: That's all for today's podcast. For more news and analysis, head over to the realnews.com. Thanks for joining us.